Extraordinary Terrestrials, Chapter 46, The Last of Karen Lorentz Fire. So let's get down to brass tacks, Maddie stated after they'd finished swerving out of the parking lot. What's all this about you leaving the bog to me? Was that just crazy talk? The woman in the passenger seat gave her a nervous, oblivious glance and chirped like a cricket. Maddie tried not to be annoyed. You realize I don't even own this car, she continued. I haven't even completed college. I'm hardly an adult. Hardly someone eligible to own property. Why me, Karen? You don't even like me. You fought for the bog, Karen replied. Maddie wondered if simply uttering her name had summoned Karen's consciousness. So did Trip, she argued. Trip would not have set foot in that bog, let alone fought for it, if he hadn't been by your side, someone else replied. This must be heck now. Maddie recognized her voice. Yes, if it weren't for me, Maddie mused, recalling Tripp's harsh words from the night before. That does seem to be the popular opinion. Tripp has his hands full already, figuring out who he is and how to feel again. Besides, Heck said, smirking, why let all the boys have the fun? Karen agrees with me on this one. Maddie gave it a thought letting the weight of the idea descend upon her. Owning land. Owning the bog. In the seat beside her, the woman became Karen again. If I'm going to return to the bog, I need my home to be protected. I know you are capable. She gave a sheepish laugh. More capable than myself, as it turns out. I I guess, Maddie replied, still dumbstruck with the idea of such a responsibility. And of course, with the bog, there also comes Jack's old homestead, Heck added. The cabin. It hadn't yet occurred to her, but it made sense. It was part of the Bloodsworth plot that Karen had bought. Part of the bog, in a way. It would be hers. I don't want to push any particulars on you, Heck advised. But I think it's about time that cabin had some happy memories to fill it again. There was a time when it was a very happy place. Ask Tripp and he'll tell you. It wasn't always so sad. Maddie said nothing, feeling a familiar sense of being cornered. Was there a way out of this? Did she have to accept the offer? More importantly, did she have any good reasons not to accept? I need to think about it, she finally replied. Karen snorted. Think all you want, but I'm not offering it to you, she stated curtly. The bog is yours now. I signed the papers last night. Joe was my witness, so he shouldn't give you any trouble. As soon as they decide I'm long gone, disappeared, and, well, good as deceased, the ownership goes over to you whether you like it or not. From that point, you can do as you please, but I expect you to do the right thing. The right thing? Either continue to protect it or pass it on to someone more able than yourself. I just don't know if I want that kind of power... 
Karen interrupted, becoming agitated. Jesus, and I thought I was a fool for never thinking of the future. I never did because I never cared what happened after I died. Short-term lifestyle, instant gratification, that was me. But you... Maddie sensed Karen was about to say something she did not want to hear, but damned if the woman censored herself for Maddie. That was the last thing she needed. What? Maddie fired back. What about me? You're afraid to think of the future. It's not just that you don't care. You're afraid to care. Karen sighed, and Maddie could feel the woman's ridiculing eyes on her. She took the turn onto Route 115 much sharper than she needed to. She wanted Karen to stop, and she wanted Karen to convince her that owning the bog was a good thing. Karen continued the pitch. In this day and age, to protect a living patch of nature is to have some pull in the outcome of our existence. Don't you want things like the bog to continue? Maddie thought of what the bog would be like. 50, then 100 years from now, if things continued on their course around it. The suburbs surrounding the bog would turn into McMansions, the mansions would turn into car lots and strip malls, the commercial buildings turning into skyscrapers, the moss choking and withering in car exhaust. What was the point? After much thought, Maddie finally spoke. I'm trying, she said. I'm trying not to fear the future, but the way our world is drastically changing... No, the way we are drastically changing our world, I have a hard time seeing a good outcome. It's either humans or everything else. Either we destroy our home or it destroys us. Why do we always have to fight our own existence? The woman had changed as Maddie spoke. Heck now smiled, patting Maddie's arm. There's your mistake. You keep using the word our. Our world, our home, our existence. A human fallacy. It belongs as much to us as we belong to it, she sighed, resting her hands elegantly in her lap, watching the trees fly by her window. Humans invented the concepts of good and bad. In truth, the two are irrelevant to the trees and birds and what have you. Even when this existence ceases, something else will go on, just as magnificent and just as inexplicable. But I like this existence, Maddie insisted. I don't want the bog to end, and I don't want humans to end. Then stop assuming they will, and do what you can to prevent that ending. You can't predict the future, Maddie. Neither can I. Sure, the bog has shown me possible paths for the way things could go, but I'd be a fool to assume those are the only possible paths, just as I'd be a fool to assume the bog is the only natural wonder of its kind. This made Maddie's ears perk up. You're saying the bog isn't the only... Well, there are other places... She struggled for words. There are other mysteries like the bog we haven't discovered yet? I'm not saying anything, Maddie, I'm guessing, Heck said with a shrug. But do you really think Bloodsworth Bog is the only one of its kind? Do you really think something that fantastical could only occur once on this absurd planet? And do you think you could find more places like it if you didn't have the bog to begin with? If you want to know more, you need to save the bog. 
As if on cue, they arrived on Hackmatack, and the scraggly black spruces came into view. Maddie was overcome with a sense of everything adding up in one moment. She noticed her white knuckles and the goosebumps gathering on her arms. She could study the bog for the rest of her life if she wanted. She could learn. Trip could too. They could discover more places like the bog. They could understand new things about existence because of the bog. They could change the world. She parked her car alongside the entrance to the gate. Concern returned to her thoughts with the sound of heavy machinery. Heller and Reynolds. She'd forgotten. Uh Uh-oh, she uttered. thoughts were of a simpler nature as he raced away from the hospital on Bud's bike. It was fortunate in this instance that Bud was tall for his age. It meant that someone short for his age did not have to compensate much when riding a child's bicycle. What did make the ride difficult were the hospital slippers, several sizes too small, and the mop wig that continued to get in Tripp's eyes. He could hear sirens behind him start up, likely ambulances. By now, they would have alerted the police as well. Tripp needed to find a way to elude them, some sort of side street. If he cut through the center of town, he could reach the suburbs and easily lose them in a neighborhood somewhere. But town was a ways off. He was still flying down the twisting, canopied road that made its way from the next town over. The wind whipped over his entire body, and the afternoon light shone through the newly green trees. The warm air had a sweet fresh scent. Tripp allowed himself to enjoy the moment. It was a similar yet amplified feeling to what he'd experienced when first rumbling down the halls of the hospital. Freedom. He entertained the notion that he'd gotten a little too into character when pretending to be Karen. Surely she was having a similar feeling of emancipation while riding away from the hospital. But Tripp knew the sensations he was feeling in this moment were his, and his alone. He felt he could do anything. He wanted to do everything, and it was the wanting that made it seem possible. If he wanted to, he could tell Maddie he loved her. And he would. If he wanted to, he could learn anything. Everything. And he would. If he wanted to, he could bypass every pursuer, overcome every obstacle. And he would. If he wanted to, he could change the world. And he would. With these thoughts came a new, bubbling, warm feeling. It began in his chest and ended somewhere in his nose. It was almost like crying, but happy and with no tears. Through some subconscious memory from long ago, maybe even a memory of Jack's, Tripp realized that this sensation was laughter. For a second, he almost knew what it was like to smile. Of course, Tripp did not laugh, and he did not smile. He stopped himself before it got out of hand. There were still things to worry about. The sirens were gaining on him as he hit town, and Tripp found he was gaining attention as he passed pedestrians. 
Adults peered at him, questioningly, glancing down the road at the sound of ambulances and fire trucks in hot pursuit. Fire trucks? Tripp muttered, amazed that they'd gone to such lengths. Really? Children were smiling, laughing, hopping up and down with glee as they pointed at him and tugged at their parents' shirt sleeves. Tripp realized that he looked like some kind of clown heading a parade, wobbling through town on a child's bicycle with a mop on his head. He passed old repurposed buildings and found himself remembering their early days. There was a time when Gunther's was a general store. There was a time when that insurance agency was a police headquarters. There was a time when the House of Pizza, with its apartments up above, was a boarding house. He knew because Jack knew. But Jack's memories were different now, Tripp found. They were just that, Jack's. They were there, but no longer a burden on Tripp's conscience. He remembered seeing these things, but he did not feel them as Jack had. It came as both a sadness and a relief when Tripp understood that Jack's sentience had once again become separate from his own. It was for the best, he decided. Just as the ambulances and fire trucks came into town, he came upon a street to his left which branched into a neighborhood. Tripp ducked out of sight, knowing that this street would loop back around to Main Street. He could linger in the shaded neighborhood until it sounded as if they'd passed by, and then secretly follow them until they reached Munson. At that point, his pursuers would think they'd lost him, so they wouldn't notice him sneaking home. Hearing no sirens, Tripp returned to Main Street and peeked to his right, towards the direction everyone had come from. The street was empty as far as he could see. Even the crowds of people who thought they were parade-goers must have followed what they thought was a parade. Tripp was just about to emerge from his quiet side street when he heard someone holler. There she is! It was a child. Glancing to his left, Tripp realized his plan would have worked perfectly if the drivers of the ambulances, fire trucks, and now cop cars hadn't figured his plan out instantly and turned around to gather to the left of the side street. The child's voice he'd heard was none other than Bud, hanging out the window of an ambulance. He was doing his job a little too well now. Tripp had only a second to figure out what to do next. He could cut out in front of them and head towards the end of Main Street that met with Hackmatack. He could turn around and retreat into the loop. They would surely catch him if he tried either option. He would need to go where cars could not. Thinking fast, Tripp took off across Main Street, cutting them off. He was headed directly for Gunther's front door. Behind him, engines revved and he heard Bud call out. She stole my bike! Tripp remembered he was on a bike too late to prepare for the curb that collided violently with his front wheel. He found himself in midair, then striking something hard, then rolling across the tile floor of Gunther's grind. Patrons looked up from their phones and laptops, some letting out small gasps. Tripp had little time to praise whoever Gunther was for installing a front door that opened inwards before he was back on his feet, leaping over the counter and dodging a pot of hot coffee the frightened barista had offered as her only defense. Tripp's hospital slippers did exactly what their name implied as he tried to cross the coffee-strewn floor to the back emergency exit. Hey! the barista hollered after him. What do you think this place is, a circus? I'm calling the cops! Tripp considered how long it would be before the barista realized the cops were already on the job. 
He burst out the back door into an alleyway that smelled of laundromat. He listened. The sirens seemed to be coming from both his left and his right. They were trying to surround him. Past the laundromat, there was a residential area. If Tripp continued on this course, he might be able to find refuge in a neighborhood and shake the parade of emergency vehicles. As if the laundromat had been listening to his thoughts, the back door opened and a surly teenager emerged with a bag of trash. He stopped in his tracks when his heavily lined eyes lit on Trip. Trip braced himself. Now was a good time to use a trick he'd learned from Maddie. Anything done with utmost confidence and authority was less likely to be questioned. So, standing tall and giving a terse nod, Trip strode past the teenage boy as if he were the chief laundromat inspector. The boy watched him pass in a daze. The flaw in this plan was that Tripp was still wearing a hospital gown, slippers that were too small, and a mop on his head, but this flaw did not become apparent until he was already through the door. Clarity returned to the teenage boy's eyes. Hey, he said with the slightest hint of concern. Hey, what are you- you can't- hey, wait! Tripp was already running, past dryers and washers and hampers and people with earbuds in and dog-eared books and crossed legs. He burst out the front door with hardly another protest, then found himself at another street to cross. Tripp would have paused to catch his breath, however the fire trucks and police cars and ambulances were approaching from both ends of the street. Yet again, they had predicted his next move. So Tripp bolted through two-lane traffic, playing Frogger with a semi-truck and a Winnebago and a station wagon and a pickup. Horns honked and drivers voiced their road rage, but he somehow made it to the other side of the road and ducked under a weeping willow in someone's front yard, obscuring himself but also obscuring his vision. Tripp stumbled over grass and tree roots as he tried to make out what was coming up ahead. As it turned out, it was a six-foot fence. He launched upwards just before colliding with the wood and managed to leapfrog over the fence into someone's in-ground pool. It took Tripp a moment to understand why he was suddenly submerged in chlorinated water. When he surfaced, he found himself face to face with a little girl in full scuba attire. She spat out her snorkel to utter an interjection. Hey! Tripp did not take the time to explain himself. Swimming as if in the Olympics, he managed to find the edge of the pool. He was on dry land and hopping over another fence before he realized there was a child-sized inner tube still slung around his neck. Then he noticed a large untethered mastiff when it let out a roaring bark and jolted towards him. He yanked the inner tube off his head and flung it like a frisbee, causing the dog to forget Trip was his foe long enough for him to continue his triathlon. He then found himself in a driveway, allegedly outside the boundaries of the Mastiff's invisible fence, and soon became entangled in a street hockey goalpost. Wrestling with the netting and feeling like a trapped insect, Tripp found himself also wrestling with a hospital gown which now dangled from his elbows. It dawned on him that most of his costume was gone now. The mop wig was surely still floating in the swimming pool, and it was highly likely that the slippers were too. But as Tripp stumbled and lurched down the driveway, still kicking the hockey net away, he found he'd made his way to Hackmatack. He exhaled a small cry of joy. Glancing to his right, Tripp could even see churches, like a beacon of sanctuary in the distance. If he could just make it there, he'd be in the clear. 
panting, dripping, and shoeless, Trip resumed his race. Halfway there, he heard the sirens again, whining and blasting, as he finally managed to free himself of the hockey net and the hospital gown. Cold metal dug at the bog's murky flesh, carving away layer after layer, century after century. It dug recklessly for the bog's secrets, paying no mind to the dangers at hand. Above ground, a woman argued with a man, and a machine roared. Younger humans looked on anxiously, not knowing why they felt uneasy. Birds scattered in fear. Amphibians leapt with each tremor. The bog was vulnerable, missing a crucial defense, but that defense was near and would be ready to put up a fight. As soon as she arrived, the attack would launch. Tripp's horde of followers did not come into view until he was just reaching Churchy's. He glanced at the flashing lights in the distance before bolting inside. Hey, Tree, you forget when you work again? You was here earlier today, member? Churchy exclaimed from behind the counter. I can only give you so many hours. Shop's gotta close sometime. Golly, I wonder what them sirens is yelling about. Tripp had little time to give his employer much attention as he passed the old man. He had an idea, a perfect plan to solidify his alibi, hide in plain sight. He grabbed a work apron from behind the counter and threw it on. Standing behind the door just long enough to gather himself, tidy his hair, and catch his breath, Tripp waited for the sirens to get closer. Then he stepped outside. Screaming police cars, ambulances, and fire trucks flew by, along with several unmarked vehicles and curious civilians wondering why the parade had taken such an out-of-the-way route. Tripp paid all the passing traffic no mind as he watered the geraniums for sale out front. Placing a casual hand in his pocket, he even began to whistle. The police car that had been parked outside all along almost went unnoticed, until Tripp found himself face-to-face with Phil Hadlock. The man gave him a puzzled but also knowing look. Trip, he said kindly enough. You're soaking wet. Yes, Trip choked out as soon as he found his tongue. The jig was up. And last I checked, Phil continued, glancing at Trip's stockinged feet. This was a no shoes, no service establishment. I would imagine those rules apply threefold for employees. "'What's this?' Karen asked. 
hearing the machines. She was out of the car before Maddie could even unbuckle. "'Wait!' Maddie yelped feebly, struggling after the woman whose hands now removed Tripp's shoes. Heck dropped them on the pavement and shook open the unlocked gate. Maddie realized the same woman she'd had to carry down several flights of stairs was now storming through muck and moss. There was a rage in Karen's, or Heck's, countenance that made Maddie uneasy. She wondered if it was rage itself which now fueled whoever this woman was sending her charging through the wetland towards the sound of machinery. Deep gouges in the earth made by large treaded tires led the way. They had already filled with murky brown water. Karen, wait! We can't be seen! Maddie called after her, unsuccessfully. Orange machinery came into view, looming over the hobbling figure of Karen Laurent. Peering, Maddie spotted Reynolds. She was hollering emphatically over the din at Heller, who only watched with his arms crossed as the great metal claw scooped mound after mound of peat and earth out of a large chasm. It dumped each sloshing pile of muck alongside the hole, splattering the onlooking interns. Maddie couldn't stifle the sensation of having stumbled upon a crime scene in action. She and Karen had not yet been spotted, but this wouldn't last long. Karen wasn't making any attempts to conceal herself as she slogged up to the roaring machine. Reynolds was the first to notice. First spotting Karen, then giving Maddie a perplexed glance. She shrugged, as if she'd just happened to arrive at the same time as this strange, homeless-looking woman in a hooded sweatshirt. This woman whose eyes filled with more and more fury as each scoop of earth was carved from her home. Reynolds tugged on Heller's sleeve, at which point he decided to involve himself. This was his mistake. "'Excuse me,' he admonished as he approached Karen's small figure. Maddie noted that Karen had changed posture in a strange way. She was hunched so that her shoulders were almost up to her ears." Maddie was reminded of the times she'd seen Tripp's cat get spooked. Heller continued his intervention. This is a private property, and we're trying to do some work here. I don't know who you are, but this is actually a hazardous environment. It was as he tried to put his hand on her back and escort her away that Maddie knew things would take a sour turn. Uh, I wouldn't, she began to advise. Her words went unheard. Karen threw Heller's hand down and fixed her fiery gaze on him. Her hands were claws at her sides. Her hood had fallen back, revealing her graying, dirty blonde hair. It stood on end. Ma'am? Heller persisted. She interrupted him with a horrifically inhuman sound. Inhuman because no human could have made the sound, no human could have let out a bellow so identical to a red-winged blackbird whose nest had been invaded. The harsh, bone-rattling bray silenced Heller. He instinctively took a clumsy step back, eyes wide. That's... that's not... he muttered, incapable of forming coherent thoughts, let alone words. It occurred to Maddie for the first time that this woman, whom she had helped escape from a psychiatric ward might actually be dangerous. But Karen did not launch the assault Maddie expected. 
Instead, she turned her attentions to the backhoe and the wound it had created. Following her gaze, Maddie realized the earth was undergoing another transformation. Interns scattered, some gasping, others pointing as they ran. The ground beneath the backhoe was roiling and heaving. It rose upwards as the machine wobbled atop a new mound that had not been there before. Alarmed more than anyone else could be, the construction worker operating the backhoe leapt from his perch and tumbled onto the ground before coming to his feet and running several more paces. Maddie looked back to Karen, whose fiery eyes were fixed on the phenomena, and realized, without knowing how, that Karen was causing this. Karen was making it happen. Maddie saw, but wouldn't comprehend it until later, just as she saw, but wouldn't comprehend the moss that had somehow climbed up Karen's bare feet. She had only a few seconds to even notice that the newly formed and still growing mound was steaming. It reminded her of something, something that normally didn't happen in bogs, something that happened in the tropics or in large mountain ranges. Reynolds spoke her thoughts. Volcano, she murmured backing away. Maddie should have done the same, but she was glued to the spot, dumbfounded with fascination. She looked back to Karen, thinking they needed to get out of here. She needed to get Karen away from here. It was not safe. Then there was a great whoosh and a gust of suffocating heat. Maddie saw real fire in Karen's eyes. The mound burst open and flames emerged. Surrounding the backhoe, erupting upwards, Maddie knew without understanding why that this was the same fire from a year ago, the fire Karen had started, and the fire that had vanished without explanation. Here was the last of it, exploding out of the earth at Karen's command and engulfing the backhoe. It was engulfing the backhoe. Maddie took a step back, realizing what would happen just before it did. There wasn't enough time. She was too close. Karen was even closer. Reynolds and Heller were still watching in a daze as the interns scurried away. was just about to fabricate an explanation for Phil Hadlock when he saw the massive fireball rise from the bog behind the tall policeman. Phil must have noticed his astonishment, or perhaps he'd heard the sudden poof, like a stove burner lighting after it had leaked too much gas. But Tripp did not say Maddie's name, and he did not begin to run until the second explosion occurred. The fear did not truly seize him until the first ball of fire was followed by a massive blast and a much larger ball of fire. This second fireball almost immediately turned into a rising, billowing cloud of black smoke. Then Tripp could only hear his feet pounding on the pavement and Phil behind him calling for backup. Tripp, wait, it's not safe, the policeman hollered after him. Trip couldn't wait. Not a second could be spared. His breaths rattled painfully in his chest as he ran, and he tried not to think about how much he'd already exerted himself that afternoon. He also tried not to think about what might have happened to Maddie. 
if she were in proximity to the explosions, if she were hurt. Pungent smoke met his nose. Terrestrials is written, read, and recorded by Miriam Rimkunis. All piano music was written and performed by Jonas Rimkunis. All public domain organ music was performed by John Rimkunis. All other music was written and performed by Miriam Rimkunis. Needless to say, all rights reserved. Tune in every Thursday for the next chapter. The spring peepers heard at the beginning of this chapter were recorded in South Berwick, Maine by free sound user Bud Gillette. A link to their recording is in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please leave ratings and reviews for Extraordinary Terrestrials on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Libsyn. To get a shout-out from Churchy, you can contribute to the podcast's Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. You can also follow the podcast and tell your friends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as the website, extraordinaryterrestrialspodcast.com. Lastly, go outside! Let's talk about the latest victim of climate change, Texas. Whether you agree with that statement or not, we can all agree that there are people there who need a lot of help right now. Send them your money. Visit redcross.org. At the very least, go outside. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 